Welcome to my version of Desert Island Discs, this time with my dad, Alistair Olford, asking the questions to me. We recorded this back in November 2021. I was in the middle of the rainforest up in far north Queensland while my dad was back in Glasgow in Scotland. So a little bit patchy internet and not great reception, um, but we've yeah popped it together. It was strange popping it together while listening to myself talk about myself but i had a great time chatting to dad and yeah i hope you enjoy it too really happy to be here on our version of desert island discs my name is alistair alford and guest today is murray alford and no coincidence that we have the same surname. Uh, so Murray is my son. And just to do a little bit of an introduction of what I know about you so far, you were born and brought up in Glasgow. Uh, you spent um, interesting school days here. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that. And uh, a few years ago, six years ago, you emigrated to Australia. So very very happy to be able to talk to you, Murray, and talk about your Desert Island Discs and how you've decided which ones are the most important to you. So, nice to see you. Yeah, no, good. Very excited to do this. And John, it was, I was thinking about this and I wanted to, I was like, oh yeah, one day I'll do it and it'll be exciting and, um, you know, when, when I'm a bit older. And it was just this week I was driving and I thought, I'm 30. I should surely have enough to talk about myself, about, you know, music that's influenced me or I want to take with me to an island. So I was like, yeah, let's just do it. And um, I might struggle to find eight tracks, but um, yeah, I, I actually found that it was quite hard to only keep it to eight. Well, that's the interesting thing, because um, we are reciprocating what you did for me a few months ago, that you did the Desert Island Discs as the host and I was the guest. And it was amazing how you just cannot get the right eight songs. And that'll change next week or the week after. But at 30, when I was 30, I don't think I'd done half of what you had done. So let me first of all take you back to your school days, which I obviously have a vested interest in, in remembering. And your primary school here in Scotstone, I don't think was very good. <laughs> and, Maybe you have a different perspective. What do you remember about what was good or bad about primary education? Uh, do you know what? If I, if I think back to that time at Scotston Primary, my fond memories are more of, you know, running around Scotston and cycling bikes through the alleyways and climbing trees and playing up and down the nature trail. The actual school itself, I don't know really what my, my feelings are for there because there was... I guess some good times. I mean, and it wasn't horrendous or bad or anything, but I don't think I got masses amount of enjoyment of, yeah, no, I've not really thought about it actually. I've just kind of, my whole is just lumped into just growing up in Scotland and sort of the other great things, but the, the school itself. Well, I, maybe yeah. I'll come on to the rest of Scotland in a moment, but um, I think what I was disappointed about with Scotland Primary was that they did not, um, uh, understand that you had uh, a visual acuity issue, dyslexia. And when you think that one in 10, one in 15 
people who have dyslexia, they should know that at least one, maybe two people in every class is dyslexic. And so them not being able to recognize that was a huge disappointment. Do you remember the process of, yeah. um, of that? Well, I did. You know, I remember, do you know, again, it's like, because obviously I, I went on primary one, primary two, fine, primary three, Mrs. Buchanan, not a fan of me. I just remember thinking, she doesn't like me. Um, you know, primary four. I can't actually really remember my primary four teacher, but I, unless it was Mrs. Hastings, I always felt like, yeah, it was Mrs. Yeah, she was really didn't like me. And it was really weird. I remember she liked Abby and Abby and I were at that time, we were doing extra lessons at home. And I just remember her getting worse. I'm me getting worse marks than Abby, but we were sort of doing the same stuff. Um, and just, I just didn't. Yeah. And then primary five, Mr. Stewart, he was a really nice man, but I remember quite clearly when sitting in his classroom, he'd taken us aside. So I was at the naughty table trying to do the bits of work, which for whatever reason, I was at the naughty table and him getting really frustrated or not understanding why I wasn't getting it. And it just seemed like, I remember the really noisy room. I remember trying to fill out the, whatever little bit of homework we had, um, that we were doing at the table and just, yeah, not, not understanding and not really understanding why he didn't get that. I just wasn't getting it. So when you were diagnosed uh, or people realized you had dyslexia, did anything change at school or did they just, oh, well, there's somebody that um, we don't need to bother about? No, I don't, I don't, I don't remember anything changing apart from, I remember, do you know, I remember getting to primary six with Mr. Boyd and I do remember enjoying his classes. I remember, you know, I do have fond memories of him. He was a cool man. He, I still, I actually still have a key ring that he gave me um, because I remember doing projects and I really enjoyed that. I love putting together the books of the projects, working on the computer. And I made a project about Australia. Um, and I remember my little face on a joey coming out of a felt kangaroo in the front. And, you know, again, I had just been able to talk to him about Australia. He'd been on, he'd been traveling and he went and he came and he brought me back a key ring. Um, and yeah, just, he was a really, really cool guy. And I enjoyed that. And then, then going into primary seven, again, Mrs. McCafferty, I think. I, again, I remember enjoying her lessons as well. We learning stuff about history and we learning stuff about, um, you know, look, reading more books, but in class and I don't, yeah, those last two years. So maybe something did change or maybe it was just two good teachers towards the end, but certainly with dyslexia and being treated differently, I didn't feel like I was something switched and it changed. I, I only think about that because one of my good friends was diagnosed and of course being much, much, much older, um, he said it was the best day of his life because it meant that his teachers weren't allowed to hit him anymore. <laughs> so in those days, you got the belt if you got things wrong. Um, and so he said, oh, it was fantastic. Wow. Okay, well, I, I was just interested in that point of how you remembered those days of the diagnosis and moving on from there. And the, the growing up in Scotston, which you just mentioned a little bit earlier on, um, as, as a kid, it was, I presume, 
the trees, the, uh, the nature trail, the environment, uh, must have been quite useful for you to play around with your mates there. Yeah, I just think it was great. You know, the, you know, we, I made, you know, we, I had a good group of friends, um, especially, again, I think it was coming towards the end of primary five, really, when we could start doing a little bit more, I think, because pre-primary five, I remember sort of really just being sort of the McClellans, but then I was able to sort of go around to people's houses, more like Ian and David and Jamie um, and Callum across the road. Um, and strewing and yeah just I just my memory is just literally leaving the house on my bicycle or walking around the streets and having a great great time climbing trees carving our names into <laughs> trees um building rafts um to take across the pond in the Victoria Park or um knocking. I didn't know about that <laughs> yeah, we did twice. I remember going up and down the neighborhood and knocking on doors asking for empty milk cartons and bottles and we strapped all these plastic bottles and we found a crate in an alleyway and put all the bottles under a crate and tied two logs to either side of it and paddled across the, the Victoria Pond. Did it actually work? Yeah, it did. And I remember, um, was it David Gray's dad or... or Callum's dad, they were like, absolutely not. You're 100% sink. And no, I don't even know why we got the idea of that would work, but we, um, you know, great. Or, you know, knocking on doors and washing people's cars for, you know, a gold coin. Um, <laughs> yes. And your paper round. Do you remember your paper oh, round? I hated the paper round. That was just <laughs> awful. And we all hated it. Jamie Taylor had a paper round as well, and his was awful. Everybody's paper round was awful. You know, you'd put the leaflets inside the Glaswegian and then you'd have to fold it all up and then you'd, you know, drag it up and down the street, dropping it off at doors and you'd come home with something like seven pounds. And then you'd be jealous of the people who had the, you know, delivering the paid newspapers from the Herald, from the news agents, um, who'd get paid a little bit more money to deliver to, you know, a small selection of houses where we just got something like 0 0.1 P or a penny per leaflet that was entitled to each one. It's dreadful. I don't, dreadful. I don't think I got any character building from that. I was just miserable. I don't know what I learned from delivering a paper round other than I can say I had a paper round. I suppose pick the right job and be <laughs> happy with it or be, make sure you, you've got a job you enjoy. Look, we're going to start with uh, your first uh, selection of songs. So um, I see we got Hey Jude. Um, it's a remastered one, uh, but tell me why Hey Jude? Well, you know, I thought I wanted to do, you know, my very first memory of music. Um, and I guess my, it's weird, it's my only influence of music from our household would be the Beatles. Uh, I look at Jessica, who's got influence of things like, you know, Barry White, Oasis, um, sort of all sorts of sort of Brit pop and um, loads more sort of, um, musical things i know i think their house just had constant music blaring and in the car they listened to the radio um you know whereas you know when we were driving around the radio wasn't really on in the car or you had a selection of cds and you didn't even play the beatles in the car but you know obviously the bootleg beatles of neil harrison um we would go to these concerts um of uncle neil's concerts and it was great it was, it was my first concert um 
every year I got to take a friend, different friend. I think I took Struan twice and um, just thought, you know, the that experience then is sort of kept, yeah, just, I just, it's, I guess, my first influence. And then sort of going to Christmases and I remember playing Strawberry Fields on the piano with Neil. Um, I remember being in that tiny little French village and Neil was there and there was a bit of an impromptu Hey Jude at their Bastille festivities. Um, and, you know, even like in 2016, I was in Hanoi for work and a little um, busker was there playing Hey Jude and where was there with all the cast and we stopped and suddenly there was this bit of a street party, the Hey Jude of this man who had no idea who was in front of him. And I'm standing there with quite, you know, some quite, now quite famous actors. With John Goodman, I remember, yeah. Yeah, John Goodman, J.C. Riley, Brie Larson, uh, Mark Evan Jackson, Eugene, um, the cast of Straight Outta Compton, and just had like this great moment. It was all the lot of crew were there as well. So I feel like the Beatles keeps popping up throughout my life. Pat down in Port Macquarie, my adopted granny, big Beatles fan, and something that you can talk to a lot of different people about, and everybody's got a different favorite song. And I don't. I don't even know if this is my favorite Beatles song, but I thought the fact that Hey Jude keeps popping up and that moment in the song where towards the end, that sort of bit of a crescendo comes up and it's just sort of the repetition towards the end still gives me a bit of goosebumps. Okay, let's go for it. Here we go.
okay, we'll fade out on that one, uh, the Beatles. Which, yeah, I mean, I, everybody, almost everybody uh, can identify with at least one song of the Beatles or the Beatles themselves and think they're a great group. Occasionally you meet somebody who says, nah, the Beatles just don't do it for me. And I find that very, very strange. Um, moving on, I want to go to uh, secondary school, which again, um, I'm spending a little bit of time here on your education because I think the end of secondary school was what uh, changed a lot in your perspective. Although whilst you were in primary and secondary, you started to get interested in theatre um, and film. And certainly with film, I remember you would be able to, as a, a five-year-old, sit down in front of a, uh, the television, we put on a DVD or probably a video cassette in those days, and you'd watch the whole thing straight through and then maybe watch it again, which was great as a parent because they keep you occupied for, for hours and hours. But your interest, I think, went uh, or started when you started having acting lessons. Is that right? Well, I think my first memory of being interested in it beyond watching was probably the Iron Brew commercial we did, um, which I think I must have been about eight years old, I imagine. Um, and being on set, and it was a long set, it was, you know, I think we probably were there for way beyond what I was legally allowed to work for. Um, but <laughs> I, had, I had a great time. And I remember I was much more interested in the everything going on behind it. I remember, you know, the, the crew, the radios in their earpieces, the big lights, the, I guess that, you know, the behind the, the behind the scenes rope that we were allowed to walk behind, as I thought was quite exciting. And I love being treated differently, I guess. I know I probably, I don't remember ever being treated like that in any other aspect of doing anything else before, but suddenly when we were on that movie set, there was, I mean, a TV commercial set, there was, you know, different people around me who were all there interested in me and interested in what we were all doing for the evening. Um, for, for those who don't know, the Iron Brew advert you're talking about is called Jeff. So if you ever wanted to Google Iron Brew Jeff, you'll see Murray um, on that set as a wee boy. Uh, and old... <laughs> thinking back on it you know, now, as now I work in the industry, why you would do a pretty much night shoot with an eight-year-old in an interior set is baffling. You know, it's why it's, I don't know why they're working so late through into, you know, through into the early hours of the morning, but they're obviously probably quite incompetent. <laughs> I don't know, but I thought it was great at the time. <laughs> I, I remember because I was there, um, I was your chaperone and it was about a 13 hour shift. Uh, but I met the writers of the advertisement and th they were completely mad. They, they all looked about 12 years old as well, but obviously no, early 20s, I suppose. Uh, but they were there just watching how it was made. And yeah, I agree. I mean, behind the scenes where there's so much going on and so much keep you occupied must be more interesting than just sitting around waiting for something to happen that is okay, say your lines or move. Yeah, and, and you know, and then, yeah, going to do, starting to do more extra work and, um, you know, just the, I, I think there's something that's just exciting about the big trucks and the, 
the makeup rooms and the the yeah it just was, seemed really really cool and exciting and i, I remember doing so, we did another uh, advert called um don't be oh it was shooting two commercials in one day and i was in one part and this girl was in another part and they said okay cool you can go and we'll see you again in a few hours and i was like can i just stay and watch please um i just want to yeah. watch it so that's when you realize that the behind the scenes was going to be far more attractive to you as a career mm, i think so. i mean there was definitely a point when i wanted to be an actor for sure um I, you know we you traced me up and down the country for auditions and um i really enjoyed the acting classes um i enjoyed the allure of arts education in london and i enjoyed i enjoyed, I enjoyed being in plates i you know definitely enjoyed Again, but again, being in plays, I enjoyed the aspect of being behind the scenes in the curtain, being backstage and seeing the the stuff that was happening behind. And it just felt like, you know, we could go through that stage door. And that was, that was it. I get the same excitement when I go to the zoo and I'm allowed to go into a cage for whatever reason, um, for an experience. I, I, <laughs> there's something about going where I'm not meant to be is exciting. <laughs> what do you mean when you go to the zoo and you're allowed in a cage? That sounds well, crazy. I, I remember making a documentary and we were shooting in this, ani this um, animal park in Scotland and um, we were in the enclosure and there was like this cage of, it wasn't even monkeys, it probably, I can't remember what the animal was, but just the fact that I was like, oh, can I go in there? And the zookeeper was like, yeah, if you want to. And I was like, oh, great. And there's just something about me, I don't know, getting to go where the members of the public weren't allowed to go um, was exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. It sounds like you're killing it. So that may lead us on to the next song. Uh, the Killers. Why The Killers? That's, um, well, I can understand, actually. They are brilliant. Well, um, I remember, the, What's this song got for you? Well, I remember sitting in the stairwell at high school and Fraser Parry had this on his Walkman. And I heard the lines as, um, I got sober, but I'm not a soldier. And I remember it for ages and ages trying to find where that song, what the song was, what the sound was. That was the days of LimeWire and Kaza Light trying to illegally download music by searching those keywords. Couldn't find it, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. Then eventually, um, I remember going to London with mum and Elliot to see Aaron in a, in a gymnastics tournament. And I came across the music somehow. It was on my iPod and I just got the out. So I downloaded the whole album and I was listening to it and I heard the, that line. I was like, this is the song. Let's hear the killers.
It's really interesting to hear your taste in music compared with what we probably grew up with um, introducing you to, but then you go your own way and you have your own tastes and they have particular memories for you. Um, so I'm not going to take you year out of school, that, that's it. But just before we leave and parallel to that, um, I don't want to preempt anything here, but um, whilst you were doing your acting classes, that's where you met your wife. I did, yeah. I had, um, yeah, Live and Loud, um, and with Martin John Bristow as our lecturer. Um, yeah, is yeah, great. I don't want to say, I mean, I joke with her that it was love at first sight, but I definitely remember walking into the room at the first time. Um, I know exactly where I was sitting. I was, you know, this sort of square room with chairs all around two sides of it in an L shape, and I remember coming out of Maureen's office into the room and sitting down there and Jessica was over there. Um, and for sure, yeah, definitely knew who she was day one. Um, and obviously fancied her. Um, and then as we sort of got, you know, went along in the classes, was able to develop a bit of a group of friends that thankfully she was one of. It's funny because it's, it's really, really nice. I've always thought how lovely it is to, to know um that you've met the right person and you were you were very young you were mid-teens and 
um, you know, didn't happen to me for years and years and years. And I just thought it was people talking rubbish that you would meet someone and know, but you knew. And that must have been so nice. Awesome. And Jessica is just the, the greatest. So, you know, you know, you've, you've done really well. I think so. She jokes with her because her parents met when they were um, in high school and she always grew up and said, I'm never going to, you know, that never happens in real life. You two are weird. And then <laughs> <laughs> it happened to us. But I, don't, I wonder when I did, I don't know how old I would have been because I remember I definitely, we definitely got together when I was 14, just turning 15. But I was probably in the classes for a good year, at least, before we actually got together. So I think... The possibility I might have even been 13 when we first met. That is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Okay, well, we're going to take you to the end of secondary school because this is the bit I think is quite interesting that um, you want to get into creative media, uh, the creative industries. Um, but rather than go through a, the, the normal process of getting the hires that you, you could have done to go to somewhere like Sterling which I think was one of your options, you went to Cardonald to take it a different route. Did you feel that that was the best way of doing it or the only way? How did that come about? Well, it's interesting because that last, I mean, the fifth year of high school, I, you know, I, I actually had a, it was hires, but I had an amazing time. My big memory is actually two teachers is my physics teacher and my English teacher. And I loved the language. I loved reading The Inheritors. Um, and I loved her sort of pushing me to be able to sit the hire because they wanted to put me down to intermediate two. And she stayed back late and she tutored me at the end of classes to, you know, make me get that hire. And then enjoying physics. And then, you know, the next year, the final year of high school, really thinking, well, they're the only two subjects I cared about. I'm not going to do advanced higher English because you know, I got a C in the hire, so I can't do that. And, you know, did it so I could do advanced higher physics. And then the only other one was media studies. So I think I was doing two subjects. But then I was still definitely thinking, well, I'll finish sixth year of high school and then I'll apply to go to university. And you look up the brochure of universities and, yeah, Stirling or Edinburgh. And Stirling seemed to be the slightly better one. Um, but again, it was a quite a theoretical course. And... I don't, it was you, I, I definitely remember it was you that I didn't find Cardonald. I didn't, wasn't searching for Cardonald College, but I'm pretty, I feel that you even filled it, you must have filled out the application for me. You must have, you took me, because they'd already started and somehow I ended up at Cardonald College interviewing to have a place there. And yeah, the interview went great and they said, yep, yeah, you can join the course. And then it just seemed like a really easy, simple decision. I don't ever remember swaying, thinking, well, you know, I'll better stay and do physics. It was like, okay, great. Well, I'll do this for the year. Then I can apply to go to Stirling University after I've done a year at this technical college. But then, again, I love, love, love that technical college. And I was 17, and I loved so much about it. I loved being suddenly a university student Ish that you know was way beyond my friends who were still in high school I caught up with Jessica because she was a year above me so then suddenly the both of us were uh, at uni at the same time um, going to my first bar with Fraser and Grant um, 
to that campus sports bar and ordering a beer and a pizza and just thinking I'm just like the coolest. I'm going to ask you about how you left Hindland Secondary School. Uh, I know it was, you know, early in the first term of the sixth year, but I guess you left them a little present. <laughs> you were talking about my locker. Well, they wouldn't give me my five pounds back um, for the year. So I thought, well, if you're going to, if I'm going to keep the locker, I'll keep the locker then. Thank you very much. Um, and my locker was right beside Ian McGranthens. Um, so I put a, I put a pint of milk, open pint of milk in there and walked away. Uh, just <laughs> mainly to piss Ian off. And as another little screw you to the school for keeping my five pounds. Um, which is funny because the, the woman who was the admin in the school in charge of the lockers was actually Louise Dolan's auntie, who was one of our drama friends. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I obviously didn't try very hard to get my five pounds back. I thought, well, that's it. <laughs> This is more fun anyway. This is way more fun, especially for yeah. Ian. Um, which is funny because Ian was, he was the trades. We always thought Ian was going to leave to go do something tradey. He was always, like loads of people left at the end of fifth year to go do, become carpenters or electricians or become a tradesperson. And that was never in my, I always thought, well, I'll finish school. So for me to be the one to leave just at the snap of my fingers was quite a shock to all of the, especially all of my classmates, because I was in the middle of projects and, you know, we'd started experiments and we'd started things in media studies. And suddenly I was just like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm finishing on Friday. <laughs> okay. Before we get into your next phase, which is not Sterling University, uh, let's hear another song. Um, Orson. Well, yeah. That's sort of different. Well, yeah. I mean, Orson, this is encaptures everything about that portion of high school when I went and I had this other group of friends um you know you permission you let me take a day off school to go stand and cure HMV to get my CD signed by the band um you know I remember buying tickets to Orson and going with Jessica and um I remember we weren't we were you know heavily flirting and hadn't actually officially started going out with each other at all. Um, but she told all her friends, she had a boyfriend and his name was Murray and she was from the drama class and her friends came to the gig. Um, and so we sort of danced to Orson and, you know, Orson is definitely a song that reminds me of Jessica and it reminds me of the other exciting time of still in high school, but being able to get away from that small bubble and have this other group of friends where we were experiencing all sorts of different things of, you know, doing theatre, going to shows, going to London, going to gigs, concerts, people's houses, and just having a completely different experience than all my sort of school friends in their little bubble. So very fond memories of this song. Here we go.
Always staring at the outfit that you wear and love it when they check you out. Covers only 20 bucks, and even if the DJ sucks, it's time to turn this mother Okay, that was awesome. And yeah, I can see why that would be significant in in your growing up um, as you're maturing through the ages. Now, this is where it gets quite interesting because when you finished at Cardonald, um, instead of going to university as such, you did go to university, but it was the Royal Scottish Academy Drama and Music, as it was called then. And that was a nervous time for everybody because it was by audition it was partly on academic ability but do you remember that audition did you realize the pressure your parents felt about whether you were going to get in or not i do and it was i so 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 wanted it um you know they only accepted 12 people a year it was you know heralded as this completely unique course um at this conservatoire where it was taught by industry. The whole idea of the conservatoire was industry professionals taught every aspect of this, you know, creative school, um, including the film course. It just looked fantastic on paper. Um, and it was in Glasgow. So again, I got to, I, I wanted to stay. Um, obviously I was with Jessica at the time. I didn't want to go to Stirling, didn't want to go to Edinburgh. And this course just sounded unbelievable. And I remember, so I remember going to the, interview because you interviewed first um and you know nervously waiting outside and would go in and I remember trying to explain my want and desire my I felt like all my work as an extra and my little bit of acting work put me in good stead because I understood what it was like to be on a film set and Andy Dugan and Adam McElwain were there and I remember Adam McElwain saying to me because if I want a washed up actor I would just go down the corridor and grab one because it was also an acting school it's like shit (laughs) that's my selling point um and you know and they you know there was 12 places and they interviewed a lot of people and they offered the some people immediate entry including michael j ferns my future flatmate um so then i was invited to attend the um or the then workshop so then they whittled it down to more people to go to the workshop. And the workshop was when I was meant to be in Tenerife with my friends, um, which was a disaster. I was like, I need to be at the workshop. And I remember calling every single day to June, the administration's lady at the missions. Also, Adam Mako, I don't know how I got his number. Um, but I would call out, I called Adam, called him, called him, please move it, please move it, please move it. And they moved it. I don't know why they moved it, <laughs> but they did. <laughs> they should have just said, it's fine. We've got plenty of people to audition. Um, but they moved it and I went and we did this workshop and 
I, yeah, again, I loved it. I think I then was able to show them, um, I know what I'm doing and I should be here. That went really well. And then I remember going to Tea in the Park, a music festival, and you interrupting me, you messaging me, because you, you must have opened up the letter from RSMD, because we knew it would come in while I was away. And then you called me to say, or sent me a text message to say I got in and it was just unbelievable. I remember what it was, we were watching Keen at the time and just thinking, yes, this is just, just the and best. It, it was because, um, I mean, I know that the uh, RCS is, it is now called the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. Uh, they don't like it when you uh, initialize it. Um, but it has had some phenomenal alumni, um, the, the people who've gone through there. And your aunt had connections with RCS, Royal Scottish Academy. Um, that she didn't use. I felt like how badly I wanted to get in. And there was, you know, friends. <laughs> I'd, I'd, had, uh, I'd had a coffee with Hugh Hoggart, who was the head of drama. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, we well, see he's drama and uh, not film. But uh, Hugh, Hugh was a nice bloke, really but, liked you. And uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Andy Dugan. We liked Andy Dugan a lot. You interviewed and Andy Dugan. I did. On actually. the radio. Well, that was a long time ago. But he, yeah. he, he knew his film and uh, he really did. And it was he's an interesting bloke to talk to. But I don't think anybody liked Adam McElwain. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Oh, I don't know. There was, I mean, the, the, I mean, the course has had so many failings, um, as any sort of, uh, yeah, there's the course could have been, I could have been absolutely unbelievable. They had access to amazing equipment. They had access to, you know, an orchestra. They had composers studying their singers, actors, props makers, costume makers. Um, they had theaters and set pieces and scenic artists. And none of that really fed into our little film course. You know, we had to go out and make those friendships and convince those people to work with us, which again, it just, it could have been amazing. And I, I had a, I'm so glad I went still and I learned so much and stuff I still learn from there that I use today actually working in the industry. Um, it, you know, no regrets about going. I'm glad I went through everything I did there. Because they brought in, um, famous directors to talk to you about the the craft uh do you remember any of them well, anybody stand out i do yeah they did need to see that that was the thing about the course you know this course was based in scotland where there is um and there have been alumni from that school uh, robert Carlyle and david tennant and actual you know there's famous scottish directors out there and um but we were given access to people I think that were more friendly with the administration. You know, there was Zam Celine who had made a few short films and was starting to make his first feature film. There was Peter Mackie Burns who really hadn't made anything of, of, of note or worth or that had succeeded. So we were learning craft from a directing aspect and these people who I didn't feel really had, you know, they could have pulled on a lot better experience, but then there were other people who were great. You know, there was people like Barbara McKissack who used to run, um, you know, she produced all of Monarch of the Glen, which was from Scotland. And she was sort of being quite embedded in the Scottish film industry and knew her stuff. Um, Caroline Sinclair Kidd, who was also a producer, who 
had done some stuff and she, you know, made a film called Acid House that had done quite well. And, um, she was definitely, um, you know, present in the industry in Scotland at the time. And they definitely taught me stuff, which I'm grateful for. Um, you know, they put us on placements with people like, uh, Susan Clark at River City, where we learned different aspects of how to work on a professional film set. And it definitely was a professional film set that one they managed to put us on. Um, and yeah, so it, it was, it was on the cusp of could be great, but there was just, there was just some shortcomings and I feel like it was the, yeah, I just, I just, it would have been, it could have been amazing and it still could be amazing. I still don't think it's where it is. You know, they really could bang on the doors and get fantastic people in there to teach their students. Oh, maybe if you're back in the country, Murray, you can go in and have a little chat with them and give them some advice. And uh, I think we'll probably leave RCS now and we'll, we'll go to Australia in a minute. But tell me about your next selection, which is The Cooks. Yeah, well, again, The Cooks is sort of, you know, um, this sort of still this time in, in Glasgow and this um, drama group of friends. And, you know, some makes me think of, you know, again, like going, starting to go to concerts and um, tea in the park and it's sort of, you know, all these bands that started with a K, you know, I was into, I still am, is the, you know, the Killers, the Cooks, Claxons, Kaiser Chief, Kasabian, um, all these sort of, yeah. Rock. That's really strange, now you mention it. Yeah. It's, they it's, all start with a K. These K indie rock bands. Um, and this song still, you know, they came on in the office the other day and, we cranked it and, you know, one of my things would be on this desert island that I can, you know, bail out a song. And I think this is a cool song that I can definitely sing along to. And it's still, I don't know what it makes me feel because I don't, I'm terrible at picking up on lyrics and the meaning of songs. I just like the tune. And this is definitely a song I like the tune to. Here we go. Oh 
that was the cooks and um i think we'll take that as ending your your education uh because now we want to get into your career and shortly after uh, the royal scottish academy for drama and music or rcs you started working a little bit with the bbc a very little bit before you made the decision with jessica before you got married uh, to go to australia that was momentous how did you feel about that well it, you know, it's so weird because like i said like back in primary six the australia project the key ring from mr boyd and i remember making this is way before jessica was still applying to go all over the world for work um we were i was making a music video for admiral fallow um and chatting amongst the crew about wanting to go to Australia to work. And I even at the end of RCMD, I remember chatting to all my classmates saying that, yeah, it'd be really cool to go to Australia or because LA just seemed to, that seemed impossible, but Australia for work, Australia just seemed like a cool place to go. And, and I remember chatting to them saying, well, if you can go to Melbourne, I was like, I think I'm going to go to Melbourne. Melbourne would be cool. And they say, oh, well, that's all TV. Um, you need to go to Sydney for feature films. I was like, oh, can we go to Sydney then? So it was definitely the seeds were there. Um, so yeah, I was working a little bit, got a job at the BBC, so pop. I learned loads doing what I did there um, in the deep end, making fast, fast-paced television, Waterloo Road, and Jessica had graduated. Um, I was working, and she was, yeah, trying to find work and was getting job offers in places that she really didn't want to go to. I remember Wolverhampton, um, some other places in Middle England. I went to Nottingham <laughs> with her. People from Wolverhampton and Nottingham are not going to be very happy when they hear yeah. this. <laughs> well, I, the Premier Inn in Nottingham was lovely, but I don't, I mean, yeah. And then she, she got a really good job offer in Edinburgh um, for a job who made um, really custom um, lifelike artificial limbs. So it was, she was going to have to make a decision there and then to never pursue a career as a clinician and go into this different aspect of the, her industry, which is um, prosthetics and orthotics. And we were looking at Edinburgh. Edinburgh was so expensive. The commute to Edinburgh from Glasgow was the same price as a flat in Glasgow. Um, sorry, is a flat in Edinburgh. So it was, the decision was, it was looking like we were going to move to Edinburgh. And again, I was fine to go work in Edinburgh, but she then had this application come back, which said, we'll keep your CV on file. And then sure enough, three months later, they got in touch and said, hey, we want you to come to Australia, which I've since transpired to find out because uh, we obviously knew these people. They said, we always wanted Jessica, but I knew I had to exhaust all the Australian applicants first. So they put Jessica in the back burner, interviewed everyone, went back and said, yep, no, can't find anyone. We need this overseas applicant. They said, that's fine as long as she can start in a month. So, you know, that's why we, we it all happened really quick. She got the job. She said to me, I've got this job. Um, I'm going. It wasn't, I want to go or can I go or should I go? It was just, yeah, she said, I'm going. And I said, great, I'm coming with you. It, it was, uh, yeah, just made absolute sense at the time. Um, and yeah, you know, I remember being nervous. My biggest worry was the fact that I just bought that Ford Fiesta and you guys had helped me. That was my only thing keeping me to Glasgow, really, was that 
oh my God, what a waste of money, that poor car. I felt so bad you guys had helped me with it. And then as soon as one of you had said, don't worry, it's just a car, like that doesn't matter, take that out of it. Then it was like, oh, easy then, great, I'm going. We should say that um, Jessica, your now wife, um, studied at Strathclyde University Orthodox Prosthetics, which is probably the foremost educational establishment for that subject, almost in the world. It is, so, yeah. Yeah, and because of that, um, I mean, good for Jessica. She she could work anywhere in the world. And um, it, it's only in the last few years after you guys went to Australia did I realise that there are problems with uh, people in Australia losing limbs. So yeah, she, uh, she's in great demand and can do the job standing on her head, which is fabulous. I think back now, I, I don't, I mean, this job offer was in Adelaide. I, def, I, I have no memory of ever knowing what Adelaide was before she said that's where it was in Australia. <laughs> um, so sorry, everyone in Adelaide, but I didn't know you were on the map. And... Again, it it was spark. I was excited. I and do you know what? It was. I was. I had come off, finished RSMD, and not a very happy spot because I'd done this graduation film, which really beat beat me down, and there was some not very nice people involved. Which, yeah, it was really stressful time, and I felt my world was sort of imploding while making that film um, and sort of trying to get into the industry. And I remember being at. River City and, you know, feeling a little bit, I guess, I guess my, I, I now come to realize it was my pent up anger at everybody involved that was sort of manifesting itself in a bit of, I think, sort of sadness. Um, and I remember chatting to Alex about it and sort of understanding that a little bit. And then this all sort of came at the same time. So it just starting to look online at the South Australian Film Corporation, I just started feeling me with real excitement. And I was like, this is so exciting but you know that, that first you know in Adelaide me and Jessica living on the breadline renting DVDs in the library for free having date night in McDonald's in the shopping mall it was so happy I was so so happy um you know we really really didn't need anything other than just it was just exciting it was fun new group of friends new experiences everything was just absolutely it was just great it was like i mean maybe it's a bit rose tinted glasses but i just have such such fond memories of us starting to try and make it and and me jessica doing great and me trying to break into the industry starting from scratch you know went back from went down a few rungs in the ladder but yeah started to crack it adelaide being very different from almost everywhere else as far as the film television industry is concerned, although there is some there. Um, I wonder if this is where Eminem came in or is that before or after, uh, which is going to be your next choice? Well, that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, the uh, part of this, because I guess, you know, my, I guess being only 30, I don't really have songs to fully define my, my decades of experience in life. Um, and, you know, this song, this Eminem song is more that I'm a, you know, a big fan of Eminem and, and I've seen him in concert. And, you know, when I was chatting about what I wanted to take on a Desert Island, I, you know, joked that, you know, I would take an Eminem song on so I could learn all the lyrics of the song. And I was, um, you know, I 
got into Desert Island Discs while driving to and from work with Tom Hiddleston. And I remember telling him that we discussed it one night and he said, well, just so happens I have the karaoke version of Eminem on my iPod and played it in the car and then, yeah, filmed me attempting very poorly to do Eminem's Lose Yourself, which made me think, well, probably I will take this one on an island then. Because I said to him, I said, I will probably wouldn't be Lose Yourself because I already know all the words to that. And he went, oh, do you know? Let's find out. Um, and I didn't, so <laughs> let's take this one. This is just, um, uh, before we play that, I just have hilarious vision of you and Tom Hiddleston, who is absolutely blockbusteringly famous. You and him in a car, driving around, singing karaoke. Let's hear this. Look, if you had one shot, one opportunity, seize everything you ever wanted, one moment, did you capture it? Yo, his palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already. Mom's spaghetti, he's nervous, but on the surface he looks calm and ready to drop palms. But he keeps on forgetting what he wrote down. The whole crowd goes so loud, he opens his mouth, but the words won't come out. He's choking how? Everybody's choking now. The clocks run out, time's up, over, plow. Snap back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. Oh, there goes gravity. He's so mad, but he won't give up daddies. He know he won't have it. He knows his whole back's to these ropes. It don't matter, he's dope. He knows that, but he's broke. He's so stagnant, he knows when he goes back to this mobile home, that's when it's back to the lab again, yo. This old rap city better go capture this moment and hope it don't be And he's 
Okay, that's Eminem. And I'm going to move from Adelaide because Adelaide was the early days of your career in Australia, but you weren't there for very long before um, Jessica got the opportunity to move to Brisbane. And that worked really well for you, didn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, we were there for just under two years. Um, and we got to a point where I was working you know, three days a week Jessica was working and it was so, so comfy. You don't need a car in Adelaide. We walked everywhere. We were just sort of ready to retire. It was like, yep, yeah, and we're done. Um, tick. And we probably would have done if it hadn't been for Jessica's absolute mad, mad boss at the time, um, who was basically holding our visas hostage. So we had this visa which kept it nearly expiring so our visa was only valid while Jessica had a job um, and she just kept extending Jessica's job one month two months at a time so we were always just in this like perpetual limbo feeling like our rug was going to get pulled out of un from under us um, and again credit absolute credit to Jessica because I wasn't able or doing anything to fix the situation um, but she found another job opportunity in Brisbane um, and yeah, she, we flew up to Brisbane. We had some fantastic chicken wings and she did the interview and we said, yeah, we could live here. This looks great. Um, so the, her boss, Stuart, decided to sponsor Jessica and me and said, yeah, you can, we'll, we'll bring you up. And again, yeah, then came our next chapter. But um, we were both really sad to leave Adelaide. We made a lot of good friends there. Um, I had a fantastic time. I was loving work there at the time. You know, I came to Adelaide at this sort of boom period of the film industry where, you know, films like there was Tracks, The Rover, uh, Wolf Creek 2, The Water Diviner, um, some great um, television series like Deadline Gallipoli and Gallipoli and Anzac Girls. 
um, let's all sort of come at once and some children's TV shows like Danger 5 and Sam Fox Adventures and um, there was a lot happening and then I left Adelaide and the industry fell out of Adelaide. They just stopped. There was a big dry period and I landed in, uh, we drove, we had a fantastic drive from Adelaide to Brisbane that took two days and we got here and um, a couple of weeks later I did my first day in Pirates of the Caribbean. That's amazing. I mean, it's almost like it was meant to be. And we like the idea of uh, a little bit of synchronicity going on there. So Pirates of the Caribbean and Johnny Depp, that was you know, one of the first blockbusters, I suppose. Well, yeah. no, no. I mean, was it? A, would you consider that the blockbuster, the work uh, you've done it, before? Maybe not. I mean, it was so different. I mean, the, the, the water diviner, for sure, I was working in an art department and that, again, it was big Hollywood, it was Russell Crowe, it was, um, you know, action, but the coming on to Pirates of the Caribbean, it was, it was different. At the time, it was the most expensive movie ever made. The Australian film industry as a whole had never hosted anything that big before, um, and it changed. They just threw money and personnel and resources at it. And it was massive, absolutely massive. Um, was this the beginning of um, the Gold Coast's or Queensland's um, foray into blockbuster movies, or, you know, really into movie business? Or did they have an industry there already? Yeah, well, you know, Queensland and the Gold Coast, especially the Gold Coast had a film studio by a, an Italian man called, oh, I'm going to butcher his name, it's De, De, De Laurentiis. Um, Dino De Laurentiis. That's yes. the one, Dino De Laurentiis, yeah. um, who bought this film studio, built four sound stages in the 80s and went absolutely bankrupt, I think, after its first movie, which then got bought over by Village Roadshow, which is now Village Roadshow Studios. Um, and, you know, they, they did a lot of movies and they, you know, I, they started, I they felt like every two years, three years, they'd be like small movies, then one big one, small movies, then one big one. So, you know, they made Peter Pan there. Um, so Jason, um, is it Jeremy, Jeremy Isaac? Sumter. Um, Jason, Jason Isaac and Jeremy Sumter. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And he played. Well, yes. you, you auditioned for a role in that. I don't know if you remember. I did audition for a role. And I remember you not telling me it was in Australia until after the fact. Again, Australia was pulling on me to be there. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I really Pan. hoped you'd got that job. I was going to chaperone you out there and spend, you know, a couple of months in Brisbane. <laughs> apparently, the, apparently the kids were um, absolute terrors. Um, so I probably would have got swept up in some very badly behaved children. Um, <laughs> and the director, PJ, who I've since found out there was there, it was all sort of, yeah, not everybody had a good time at that, that film set. Um, but really, there was a big film. There's, yeah, that, the Fool's Gold, San Andreas. Um, okay, so um, there, there was a, a good industry going on. So it wasn't yeah. as if you were going to, you know, into, into an area that is blind for... No, for good creative media. Not at all. There was um, there's a lot of lot of bigger big films were happening here, um, you know, and in Australia in general. But yeah, um, Village Roadshow for sure hosted Scooby Doo and um, Sanctum Ghost Ship. Um, all yeah, every House of Wax. Um, every other year there was like a bigger movie, and then Pirates of the Caribbean came in, um, and that sort of kick started this. 
that was 2014, the sort of revolving door of major Hollywood pictures that started coming to Village Roadshow. So, you know, I rotated from that onto Kong Skull Island. Oh no, I'm gonna get Actually, on my I want I want to talk about that in just a minute, but let's let's have another song because we've got another three to go. Um, and Nina Simone is is next on the list. And yeah, I mean, I I, I like your selection so far, but when we come to Nina Simone, I'm just yeah, th this well, is talent extraordinaire. Yeah, love Nina Simone. Love listening to all of Nina Simone, and she, you know, she brings up nostalgia of movies, whether it be you know sort of from the Thomas Crown Affair to um, Hocus Pocus. You know, her music just pops up, and you know, La Femme Nikita um, as well. It just feels like Nina Simone is just great and you know picking one of our tracks you know there's you feeling good or there's um i love the one she does about um i think it's gonna rain um but there's something about this song which just again ticks my box of i could belt on the beach i like that this is actually a cover of an angel song and i love covers i love i love listening to music where someone else has interpreted it completely differently which nina simone's done here I love that there's a cover of this one of Eustaph Stevens, Cat Stevens, which obviously you're a big fan of and was in your Desert Island disc. So I just felt like this, of all the Nina Simone songs, is probably the one to pick to take on my island. I'm looking forward to hearing this. Baby, you understand me now If sometimes you see that I'm mad don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are Just a soul whose intentions are good. 
and you just cannot go wrong with Nina Simone. Uh, I love that you chose that. Uh, it's brilliant. Um, and I love that you, you have good taste in, in music as well as great taste in movies. Um, and as you and I, well, as you were growing up, I think I'd done a lot of my growing up by then, we could watch the same movies and dissect them. I mean, I love love movies, not as much as you do, but um, I, I like that we could understand how movies were made. And you taught me a lot about what is going on in the background. And uh, there's your talent that you are working your way up the, the ladder of production. Uh, you're now a production controller. Um, but let's talk about some of the, the blockbusters and uh, from us back in Scotland and your friends back here and our relatives, we just don't get how maybe bland or boring it can be to meet some of the, the stars who we might idolise and go, wow, wow, wow. Does it become a little bit, oh, yeah, there's Tom Hanks. Yeah, he's a nice bloke. Tom Hiddleston, yeah, he's a nice bloke. Um, you know, Brie Larson, she was sweet to work with. What does it feel like? It, it, are you initially bowled over and then you get to realise they're normal people? Or do some of them just stay with you as being, oh, yeah, they are superstars? Yeah, I mean, there's all of the there's obviously a certain caliber of actor there's no i don't there's definitely not going to be a point i definitely don't think oh yeah whatever anyone who just says oh yeah that's you know that's samuel jackson whatever is this you can't really think of this absolutely there's a bit of a, a butterfly or a sort of oh, that's pretty darn cool um and then as you get to you know there's i've been lucky to do some jobs where i've worked quite closely with those actors and the it's cool um you know, the only, of, of those levels of actors, the only one I really got to get to a stage where I didn't feel was a celebrity was, yeah, Tom Hiddleston. But that was more because I'd worked with him for nearly a year, just the two of us. Um, and it became part of my job. I mean, part of my job is always to be normal around these people. And when they come into our little bubble, they want to be treated. Um, and we're meant to treat them like they're just part of the crew. They, they're there to do a job, they're there to do a craft and they want to pull up a chair at the catering tent or they want to interact on set with technicians and not get selfies and stopped on the street. So there's a there's a bit that forces you to change your mindset. Um, but for sure, it's exciting. Um, and yeah, there's there's no, yeah, that's, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool sometimes. It, it must be. It is it is cool, and we think it's fabulous because, um, you know, I might tell my brother or sister um, and other friends about who you're meeting, who you're working with. Oh, yeah, when you dropped into Tom Hiddleston, Taylor Swift was there, and, um, you know, they had breakfast, and <laughs> people I work with are going, what? Mouths open. And I remember a couple of years ago talking about famous people we'd met, and my good friend Colin was saying, well, this is a silly conversation because think about your son, Murray. He just beats us all hands down. But then I then realised that you're right. They are part of the crew. These famous people are just ordinary members of a, a company and they yeah. do a good job. And I remember when you told me working on Paris, the Caribbean, Johnny Depp 
wasn't a particularly good offset. But as soon as the cameras rolled, it was, oh, I get it. That's why he's paid the big bucks. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, because absolutely, I mean, that was so exciting. And, and he, yeah, a lot of people hated that man because of how he was offset. You know, we either got shut down because of um, his little trip back home to America. Um, and, they, you know, we would wait hours and hours for Johnny Depp and he'd step out of his trailer sometimes and then decide to go home. Um, every location we were at had a Johnny Depp contingency that we had a, another, you know, the twice the amount of time budgeted as a location in anticipation that Johnny wouldn't show up in time. I remember I was coming home early from one place because he actually turned up to work and we shot it. Um, so, so, <laughs> wow, um, he's here today. That's strange. But I, I, you know, I wonder whether again, me saying that was back when I was again excited and in awe of seeing Johnny Depp on set because you know standing the the Black Pearl ship watching him be Captain Jack Sparrow was yeah again another major highlight that's so cool and and again anybody who didn't think that's cool is absolutely jaded but I'm definitely jaded in some aspects of my job but I can still think back and think that was pretty darn cool Okay, well, moving on to uh, Hans Zimmer. Now, Hans Zimmer, of course, um, has created the most amazing music for film. And I'm wondering if this is one of the reasons you've chosen this as one of your songs? A little bit. I mean, I'm probably going to ramble quite a lot introducing this one, but because um, <laughs> the, the, you know, you're right, I absolutely love movies. I love music and movie, movies. I love Hans Zimmer's music and movies. Um, but, you know, this song really makes me think of, there's a, uh, an English driver still saved on my phone is Neil Pommy Driver from Pirates of the Caribbean, who I've known for a long time now. And he's always got a mate, his best mate at Christie's. He used to be an auctioneer, best mate at Glastonbury, best mate at this. Oh, I know this person. I know it's about tall tales, you think. Um, he's always, so we come along, we're working on Elvis, and he says, oh, my best mate is managing Hans Zimmer. Do you want to come to the his concert he's bringing a whole orchestra with him and he's going to play music from the movies so me and my friend james kaling said yeah absolutely we want to do that um so again he's like yeah i'll sort it i'll sort it anyway so neil was no longer working for us and time came up to the concert and he was like yeah you're still good and we're like yep yeah, still great so we left work a little bit early raced up to brisbane um me and James and Neil was like, yeah, I'm not going to make it. I'm running late, but just go to this door and say your name. It's going to be all right. And we're like, all right. Another tall tale from Neil, but it's, this all just sounds way too dodgy. So we pull up to this door and we say, hey, Murray Olford, James Cowling. And they go, oh, yes, we're expecting you. And hand us this envelope each with accreditation pouring out of the envelopes. Um, we've got AAA passes, stickers, go here, go there silver tickets and um then get escorted to this roped off section in the stalls four rows back from the middle of this huge theater um to ourselves um so he <laughs> absolutely came through with the goods um and then Hans Zimmer came out and you know we were feet from him and he performed some amazing music and you know songs I remember from Gladiator The Lion King and um, Inception and um, Interstellar and 
fantastic films. Then we got to go backstage and we hung out with the band and it was just like, again, got to see him and it was just incredible. So I think if I was on my desert island, I'd be listening to Hans Zimmer, closing my eyes, trying to picture what movies and stories could be. And I hope if anybody's listening to this track, maybe they can close their eyes and try and think of a story or try and guess maybe which film this one's from. Here we go.
and that was from inception but i have to admit i wasn't sure so thank you for telling me that that whilst it was playing uh that you can remember um the the, the music from movies um is quite interesting i love it we call it we play it and work sometimes especially with james my friend the soundtrack game we'd get someone in the office to play different pieces of music from films and the first one to guess it wins and you know get little tallies and james is very very good um and again it's just it's a lot of fun you, you just try, yeah i love the soundtrack game and i love yeah i love 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 movies and the songs bring me back to those type of movies or listening to music i'm always thinking you know what movie could that be in or what that what scene could this come across or yeah. Well, I mean, Hans Zimmer obviously knows that the music and everybody in the business knows that music plays such an important part in movies. Um, we talked a bit about how, you know, the superstars are one thing that, but behind the scenes, the ordinary members of the public don't get to know much about the other superstars, which are probably the directors. And I remember you telling me that you had a, a smallish dinner party with Baz Luhrmann and meeting Baz Luhrmann. And I think, oh, wow, he's done some fabulous stuff. And of course he was doing Elvis. Um, what was it like meeting him? Yeah, yeah it, he's cool. He, he's, uh, if you think um, eccentric director, it's Baz Luhrmann. He comes with an, an aura of chaos and, um, sort of pizzazz around him um and it was so exciting to especially the movie we made was called El, was elvis but it was a um it was a version made by baz lerman who did things like moulin rouge and romeo and juliet and the great gatsby so it's like that absolute style of music and pizzazz thrown into the elvis story i think and everybody thought and i you know, being on set as well is you think this is incredible. So the, you know, was he one of the direct, like there's other directors out there for sure I would love to meet and work with. He definitely wasn't, you know, at the top of the list, but certainly knew his work and got to meet him and talk to him about some of his work. It was really cool, you know, he was telling his stories about Australia or Romeo and Juliet and um, Gatsby. And, you know, he keeps quite a, similar team so when we did do elvis there was a lot of people who had done many bad shows before um warned me you're gonna go over you're gonna be on this job for the rest of your life and i was 27 when i started and i turned 30 the year i finished so it took yeah. a long time um but yeah he's an interesting man with a lot of stories i feel i should ask um which director you would like to work with uh, maybe living or dead. Um, well, well, you know, again, the, if if I could pick, you know, I, we, we were saying, I was saying, what, in the next movie, what could I do next? So, you know, working with Quentin Tarantino would be amazing and thinking that, you know, his next movie could be his last. To be able to say, you worked on Quentin Tarantino's last movie, that would be great. I used to think I'd want to work with Steven Spielberg, but then I worked with Jen Tevis, who did two Spielberg movies back to back and said that, and she was a production supervisor. Um, and he said he's got such a small, small inner circle. And Spielberg filters his information through his little circle that 
I don't think, I think if I got to pick just one time, I'd probably pick someone like Quinton where maybe you'd get a little bit more access or you'd feel a little bit more part of it rather than just a cog in the distance. You kind of would see the changes. You know, that was part really cool with Baz is that you would, you kind of would overhear or be on the fringes of these discussions that were making major sweeping creative decisions based on locations or music or um, there was one character um, which sung the original Hound Dog in that movie which he wanted Lizzo to play and so I got to be involved in trying to get Lizzo out to the country and then Covid hit and then you see all the casting going on and who they're looking at and then you get so I, I'd love to be a director like maybe Quentin or Clint Eastwood maybe where you could see be on the fringes at least of the process. You, you hear some great stories about all of these great directors and you mentioned Clint Eastwood and one thing I heard about one of the actors working with him said that um, he usually just has one take for each scene and sometimes not even that He's, he actually records the rehearsal and so you suddenly realize that you've done it and then you move on and it's he knows what he wants and even if it's in the the rehearsal okay we don't need to do anything more and it's not like well, let's try it this way. Let's try it that way. Let's try it a dozen different ways. No, let's just do it. Yeah. And that must be great to work with someone who knows what they want and they get it quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and I've asked people that question of who worked with Clint Eastwood and everybody says, yeah, he's just like that. Very prepared, does very short days, um, doesn't mess around, knows what he wants, which is, again, what apparently what the Coen brothers are like, um, which... I asked again, I worked, um, got to work with John Goodman and we were at lunch one day and I asked him about the Coen brothers because he's worked with them three times, I think. And he said the same thing. Every time he said they know exactly what they want, they storyboard everything, they know what they want to get on the day, they know when they have it, and they yeah, can make it happen. So that would be cool. Because, um, again, it's, it's, it's the growing up with you and showing me all these different movies. You know, I feel like... Definitely, you introduced me to the craft, even if it's just like a little princess with the camera angles changing or the shots from Lehane going through the mirror. So it's to be part or see those type of shots and moments happening is kind of why I'm excited to do what I do. Uh, okay, we're going to move on to your last track, which is Youth Group. And I have to say, don't know much about Youth Group. You can well, tell me. Well, you should know this song because um, this is a song Jessica walked down the aisle to. Um, this is, although we had to have the music very quiet because um, we were during COVID and weren't meant to be having a loud party. Um, but yeah, you know, again, this song has got a cover with Jay-Z, which is cool, but you know, this version is one Jessica walked down the aisle to, and this is the one from The O.C., which is, again, another TV series which I watched and enjoyed which had fantastic music all through the OC. It had the killers in it. It had every, ca every character in the OC had their own type of music or type of band. So if a, a character was into one sort of thing, they'd have a genre of music on. So it was like the music in the show was really important. And that song, I think, is a great song. And it's a, you know, brings in memories of that. But yeah, also memories of our wedding day and strong memories of Jessica, especially this song. Let's dance in style, let's dance for a while. Heaven can wait where 
youth group. That's really nice. I remember it now. So uh, happy day. So we're really pretty much up to date because you got married uh, just over a year ago uh, during COVID, but within a window of opportunity that just worked, that uh, you guys were able to get back from Australia. Uh, you got married in Edinburgh and you're here for a short time before you were then allowed to go back to Australia and everything was closed. And um, it just seemed to be the right time to do it. And in some ways, it's going against the trend. Um, not everybody's getting married these days, but you guys have been together for so long that it just seemed the right thing to do, I presume. Well, that's fine. I think, I don't, I think Jess had given up on the idea. Um, <laughs> she'd sort of made that decision as either I get married with somebody else or I stay with Maureen and I don't get married. Um, but yeah, is I just, it's, yeah, I knew I wanted to do it and I knew that I knew it wouldn't change anything as such, but I just wanted to be able to mainly have a big day in front of everybody and just sort of say some really nice things about Jessica, hear some nice things about me and each and her and be able to sort of stand up in front of a lot of people and just say, yeah, we want to be together. We're right for each other. And, you know, we're going to have a fantastic life together. Um, and thank you all for being supportive of us. Um, that was, you know, and yeah, just be able to, yeah, there's something nice about the bond of being able to say my wife, which, at, you know, and, you know, be able to have a ring on the finger and introduce Jessica as my first wife um, is <laughs> a joke that I say, but um, yeah, it's just something that I wanted to do. Um, and she also wanted to do. Um, and yeah, we're very happy that we were able to make it work. Fantastic. And that now takes me on to the, what would be a strange concept of you being on a desert island without Jessica. But this is what this program is all about. And you've chosen some fabulous music. And as we know, you can take with you the complete works of Shakespeare and the Bible. And they're going to be there either propping up a bookcase or a dodgy table. Um, is there any other book you would want to take with you? Can I take one book or can I take a complete work of books? Like, I'm going to let you take the, the complete works. Why not? Well, then I think I'd have to take the complete works of Harry Potter. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which, yeah, obviously being dyslexic, I wasn't um, very much into reading at all. Um, but there were there were a series of books, which the first one I listened to in cassette, and then you read probably two to five, and then I was able to read the last few myself. Um, I wish I'd recorded them when I was reading them to you guys. I don't, I think that would have been fun, but you'd have a lot of, um, yeah, living up to Stephen Fry would be hard. Um, who does it would be impossible. <laughs> yeah, Stephen Fry is the master, without a doubt. Um, I did hear about him getting, getting in touch with J.K. Rowling, saying, look, uh, you've written into this, Harry put it in his pocket. And I find it very difficult to say, Harry put it in his pocket. Can you change that line or can I change that line? And she said to him, no, that's the way it's written. And children are going to be listening to you and reading the book at the same time. So you have to read it word for word. And that was, I think, in the first book. And she hadn't written the rest, all of them. And then he said, 
the number of times that she got Harry put it in his pocket into the other books was ridiculous. So I like that. Absolutely brilliant. So, yes, we're happy you take the complete works of uh, perhaps J.K. Rowling, but definitely Harry Potter. And a luxury item. What luxury item would you take with you? I was torn between either having some sort of coffee apparatus because <laughs> I am obsessed with coffee or my own cinema. And I, and I, or like a, and I can't decide. I was trying to say, like, do I want to sit there in silence and sip my coffee and watch the waves? Or would I want to watch the movies on repeat and loop? Or would the movies just make me yearn for to be off that damn island? Maybe I would be more sort of at home with just the coffee and the, the birds. Um, ah, do you know, it's... Let's go the coffee. If I've got the coffee and the music in Harry Potter, maybe that's enough. I'm thinking that maybe your luxury item of a cinema should have coffee on tap. <laughs> if I could have both, that would be great. If I can drink coffee while watching movies, that would be all I would need. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Look, Murray, Alford, it's been great catching up with your perspective of your career to date and what will be the most amazing career in the future, I'm convinced, as a producer of not just blockbuster movies, but probably art house movies as well, I think. Maybe that's the question I should have asked you earlier. If you are to produce a movie, do you want to do blockbusters or do you want to do something really significant and important and maybe might change the way people think about film? Oh, that's interesting because, you know, in uni and, you know, younger, I always said, you know, I want, I want to produce something like Inception. I want the big, the big shiny blockbusters and... um you know, I, I work with someone who jokes that they don't get out of bed for less than a hundred million dollars. Um, maybe, <laughs> maybe I want to be at that stage. I do enjoy, I enjoy the the bigness of the machine. You know, there's, you send out an email to 600 plus people. Um, on Elvis, we had over a thousand people who reported to work on one single day. Um, I enjoy that. The and and in within that, you can still produce and create some fantastic films. Um, you know, just because they're big and shiny doesn't mean that they can't make you think, they can't make you cry, they can't make you laugh. I don't think the movie needs to be, you know, so independent that it has to compromise. You know, when you make the big blockbusters, if you're lucky enough to have that much money, you can throw things at it that make it a good, a good project, whether that's cast or locations or time. Um, to do it right, um, to get you out of problems, to build big set pieces. That all helps tell the craft. So I'd probably still say I want to do the big ones. I just want to do the big ones that you actually want to watch and uh, invoke an emotion response rather than just, I guess, big and smashing. Thank you very much.